that there is something worth sacrificing practically everything, practically speaking, everything for. A goal so worthy, a love so high, that everything else shrinks in significance. And so to be asked to surrender something, to stop some activity, to alter our lifestyle, if you will, to, to, sacrifice, to sacrifice practically anything is seen as normal and necessary. And I must say, given what I've been watching, a normal and necessary daily part of moving our lives toward the goal, that worthy goal. Now, didn't Paul say somewhere, I think it was Philippians 3, that I count everything else as rubbish, and I really can't even explain the Greek word there because it's even messier than that. But I count it all as rubbish, as dung, for the sake of this one goal. Well, I've been watching it for, uh, for four or five years now. But I'm only going to go back about 10 months. See, about 10 months ago, I drove my truck up to Missouri to move Jim and Rachel, my kids, back from Roach, Missouri. Now, leaving Roach, Missouri doesn't sound like that'd be such a bad thing, does it? I don't know how it got its name, but I'm not sure I'd want to live there. But that's where the New Tribes Training Center was. And Jim and Rachel were finishing up the training part of preparation for missions. And, and now comes the implementation part. And so I drove my truck and pulled a trailer up there to help them move back. And we packed that trailer to the gills. I mean, there wasn't any space in, I mean, in every crevice and corner of the trailer. And then the bed of my pickup truck was piled high and had to be roped down. And on top of the trailer where there were mattresses that were strapped onto the trailer. And then and, and Jim's little, and, and Rachel's little SUV was just stuffed to the gills with just enough room to put, you know, to put Hudson in one corner. And so... Uh, and so, about two months ago, you see, Jim and Rachel, they, they moved into this, um, this house where they could live for free up in Denton, and it, it got sold, and so they needed another place to live, so they decided to come live with us, and we welcomed that. You know, they had just a few months left before they were to leave for Indonesia, and so Jim said, uh, you know, he needed to borrow that trailer, and, uh, and I got out of my garage, and I started clearing space to put all their stuff, and I restacked in boxes and created a really nice, you know, a real nice place to just store all of their things, and Jim comes wheeling up and, and uh, in, in the, pulling that trailer uh, behind the truck and backs it up in the driveway and opens it up. And that trailer was about half full. Not two cars, not the bed of the pickup truck piled high and roped down. I mean, he opened the back and I just kind of, I realized I had really overcleaned my garage, <laughs> which really upset me royally. Because all that stuff we could stack in one little, one little place. You get my meaning here? 
means that there is a cause, there is a goal, there is, you know, there is a, a love that is high enough that, that we would sacrifice lifestyle, creature comforts, you know, that we would literally be willing to sacrifice anything in order to move our lives toward that goal. And I have watched my children. And let me just say to you, I don't see them as heroes. I know them pretty well, okay? I didn't say what I'm saying. I'm just saying, practically speaking, when you have to go from a house full of things and, and get everything into eight suitcases in order to move yourself to Indonesia, that's what you do. You start figuring out what you're going to set aside, what you're going to leave behind. But you don't do that unless you understand what the goal is and you, and you are devoted and committed to that goal. What it takes is so essential And the point of the message this morning is to try to call your attention to awaken in all of us and, or for some of us to reinforce that there really is something, and I, I, or should I say someone, that is worth sacrificing practically everything for. Coming at it from the other direction, as you'll see in the text, what happens if we miss it? What if what happens if we miss that thing? As we'll see from the text, the results will be devastating. Devastating. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 42. I read verse 42 last week, but it's a transitional verse because it ties to both paragraphs. And we've been involved in one conversation that Jesus is, one red letter conversation that Jesus has been having uh, with the disciples. It's not, not didactic in its, uh, or teaching in its, uh, in its composition. It's really more of a dialogue. It's a conversation that's taking place where Jesus is just capturing the teachable moments. And there's some commentators who see it sort of as, as a, just a collection of, of, of just sayings just kind of pulled together that Mark didn't want to leave out. But I see it. It's connected to me. It's very connected to me. You see, because Jesus has gathered the disciples together. They have, he's come off the Mount of Transfiguration in, back into the valley, back where they really live, where you and I really live. And he finds his disciples powerless to, you know, to deal with a, a dark and demonic force that they've encountered. And, 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 and they are thoroughly embarrassed by that. And, then, and Jesus begins to use that as a teaching opportunity in their life. And... Uh, about prayer. And then as they're walking along the way and, and paths, the pathways of, of, of Palestine at the time were fairly narrow. And so you kind of walked in a line. Jesus was probably out front and he's overhearing the disciples talking about what they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus captures the teachable moment. The minute they're back in Capernaum, back in the house, he captures that teachable moment with them to teach them what true greatness really is. It's about servanthood. And in the midst of that, he brings this little uh, a child right there uh, into their midst. And so I'm gonna, we're going to read this text. We're going to pick up with verse 42. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the three key words. 
with a little bit of explanation because you need to really <clears throat> to take the time to allow the Holy Spirit just to speak through this as, as best you can, just to open yourself up and let the, because this is gonna, not a text that makes any of us very comfortable. But the, here's the three key words. The first one is scandalizo. We get the word scandal from it. And literally it means to entrap or to trip up or to cause someone to stumble. And in the translation I'm going to read, it's, it is something that causes our downfall. In the King James Version, it's most often translated as the word sin. But literally the word scandalizo means something that trips us up, causes us to stumble, or ensnares us so that we fall on our faces somewhat spiritually. Do you get that? That's used three or four four times in the text. And then there is the word Gehenna, which is always in the New Testament translated by the four-letter word a four-letter word, H-E-L-L, right? Okay, hell. Now, Gehenna is a word that has a backstory because it relates back to a place that was called Hinnom, which was a ravine on the outside of Jerusalem. And during the days of King Ahaz, in the book of Chronicles, Ahaz you know, left the temple in total disarray, the temple in Jerusalem, let it just be falling apart and moved worship to the valley of Hinnom, where he sacrificed to the God of fire, a God named Moloch. And he even sacrificed, Chronicles tells us, his own children to that God. And he led the people of Israel into that same idolatry. And literally hundreds Maybe even thousands of children were sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom. A terrible thought, isn't it? But we live in a culture that continues to sacrifice children. We just don't speak very truthfully about it. It's called abortion. But the valley of Hinnon became associated with things so dark and so evil. And the son of Ahaz, Manasseh, followed his father into that pattern of worship and continued to encourage it among Israel. And it was not until the young king, Josiah, came. And by the way, I'll just mention off the bat that you know who was prophet during the day of Ahaz and Manasseh? Isaiah. That'll figure in a minute because Jesus is going to quote a little Isaiah. But you understand now why Isaiah had such a tough job? When God called Isaiah, he said, you're going to go out there and speak and you're going to share my word and no one's going to listen? Because he was, Isaiah's primary ministry was during the days of Ahaz and Manasseh. And that's why in Isaiah he references the valley of Hinnom. And Jesus brings it up again, Gehenna. The fires of hell, again, in, in the text. So the word Gehenna, you see, is the, it became associated with the idea of hell because Josiah, when he was king, he started a revival, a spiritual renewal. And, and one of the things that they had to do was they had to totally deface and discredit and, you know, and, and somehow eliminate the worship of Moloch. And so, and so literally they turned the Valley of Hinnon into, into the garbage dump of Jerusalem where, where what would you expect you would find in a garbage dump? Worms and maggots? 
It's where the dead bodies of animals were thrown. It was anything that was refuge was thrown into the valley of, of Hinnon. And fires were started there and smoldered constantly at all time as rubbish was being born. And, it, and Hinnon, the valley of Hinnon, Gehenna became the type or the picture of the eternal fires of hell. And so, and so it's, that's, the, that's the backstory of the word Gehenna, the word hell in the text. And then there's one more word, and it's the word salt. And you, you've heard salt associated with, with us, with the disciples of, of Jesus, and, and, and Jesus will again bring up salt. But in this context, our context, he's using salt as a sacrifice, as an element or part of sacrifice, because that's where I started out. Is there something worth sacrificing everything for? And Paul, I mean, excuse me, Jesus uses salt here as a, uh, as a, a reference to sacrifice. According to Jewish law, every sacrifice offered upon the altar had to be salted before it was offered. Leviticus 2, Numbers chapter 18. And it was called the salt of the covenant. And it was extremely important. Two things about that salt. Two things. It had to be kept pure. It had to be kept pure in order to be used in sacrifice. And that's important. That plays into the text. And secondly, it had to be kept ready. It had to be kept ready. Available. For sacrifice. Okay, there's your three words. You ready to read the text? All right, just be open. Okay, ready? Chapter 9, verse 42. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones, he's got his arm wrapped around a little child, these are the ones who believe in me. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, by the way, there are two kinds of millstones in the original language, in the Greek language. You know, one of them is a a millstone or a stone that is used to ground flour in a household, a a small household type of appliance. The other is the word mylos, which stands for a huge stone for grinding that is usually driven in a circle. You know, a large stone driven in a circle to grind large bunches of grain and, and, and a donkey pushes it or an ox drives it round and round. Now, which millstone do you think Jesus is using here? The big one. I don't think he was exaggerating either. He said he'd be better off if you lead one of these to stumble, to scandalizo, to fall down, to, you know, into sin, to stumble, if you entrap them in any way where it causes their downfall. You'd be better off if you had a huge millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the bottom of the sea and, and, and you know, believe it or not, you're not going to come up three times for air. And if your hand, he says, verse 43, causes your downfall, you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell, the unquenchable fire. Verse 44, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, you will notice, Bible scholars, that, that there is a parenthesis there. Okay? 
What that tells us is that the Holman Christian Standard Version that I'm, version I'm reading from wants you to know that in the, this is in the King James Version, but in the very best manuscripts discovered since the since 16, uh, 1600s, the very best manuscripts don't really contain those words. That They're mentioned that those exact words are in here three times as a certain kind of a, a chorus to add emphasis. And my guess is that is that whoever was doing Textus Receptus from which the King James come from was a hellstone, I mean a hell and, fire and brimstone kind of preacher. And kind of wanted to emphasize, wanted to emphasize, you know, the 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 eternality, the unquenchableness of the of the fire uh, of hell, and so he repeats it three times. But in the mess manuscripts, it's it's only in verse verse forty eight. Just so you know. Now I also want you to know that it's a direct quote of Isaiah chapter sixty six and verse twenty four, the very last verse of Isaiah. 66. Now, I, I wish I could go into this for you guys, but I, I told you guys at the end of last year, when we read through the Bible in 2013, on that reading plan, the disciple, you know, discipleship journal reading plan, any, any of you remember that? What was the very last chapter we read? Isaiah 66 in that reading plan. What was the very last verse of the very last chapter we read? Where the fire is not quenched. Was that verse right there? So I've had a lot of fun this week because I, you know, literally I told y'all back in November that I, that was going to be my chapter for 2014. And it has, I have gone back there continually. And interestingly enough, as it fell to me in the way we kind of have been plotting out the sermon series, you know, that, that quotation came to me and boy, it made me go places that I needed to go in scripture. I wish we had more time to talk about that. But Jesus goes on. He says, if your foot, verse 45, causes your downfall, cut it off. Better for you to enter life maim than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The unquenchable fire where their worm does not die in the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good. But if a salt should lose its flavor, if it becomes impure from being mixed or compromised, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and use my pastoral freedom here to read another text. I want, you, I want to read Matthew's account of this. Can we do that? From chapter 18 of Matthew. So you can turn there in Scripture if, you, if you'd like, or you can read it on the screen. But because there's a significant difference between the way Matthew remembers exactly how this played out. There's a portion that Mark doesn't tell us about, and, and you'll get it pretty quick. Ready? Okay. Chapter 18, Matthew, verse 2. And he called a child to him, and he had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless... You are converted and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Entrance into the kingdom, childlike faith, not childish faith. That's what some of us continue to live out. We're talking childlike trust in the Father. Childlike trust in what He's done for us. You know, last night, um, Noah and I had a little man night uh, last night. We went to see Jess's soccer team play over at DBU, and and uh, we had a great time. And I thought he was just going to doze off on the way home, and, but he was he was wide awake, and he was just chatting me up, you know, last night. And he says, uh, he said, Granddaddy, I know who my father is. Who's your father? Who's your dad? And I says, Well, my dad's name was Lewis, and uh, and and you've never met him because he has he now lives in heaven with Jesus. And he says, Noah says, Granddaddy, I know about Jesus. And I said, Hudson, everyone who believes in Jesus will one day go to heaven to be with the Father and to be with Jesus. And he says, I know, Granddaddy. Someday I'm going to tell Jesus that I believe in him. And I know I'll go to heaven. Four years old. Childlike. It's not complicated, folks. Whoever, though, causes the downfall of one of these, verse 6 in Matthew, these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him to, be, to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must, offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off, etc. You're with me? Okay. Okay, so the beauty and the challenge of preaching through Scripture is that sometimes you bump into stuff that people don't like to hear about. How many messages nowadays in the church do you hear about hell? Heard any recently? You ready for one? You see, what the text we just read underscores three things for us, okay? And I'm just going to, I want to mention these as underscore. It underscores the reality of hell. I mean, Jesus in teaching this assumes his disciples already have insight and some understanding about what he's talking about because he doesn't go into an explanation about the afterlife and about hell. He just mentions it, the reality of it as factual, okay? He, it, it, it underscores the reality of hell. It underscores the seriousness of sin in our lives. And it stresses a certain severity and urgency in regard to these matters, does it not? Does it not have a very urgent kind of tone to it? Now, let's face it. Hell is not an easy belief for us to accept. Even C.S. Lewis. I went back to C.S. this week. I I go there often. Uh, The great Christian apologist, he said it this way, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one. The belief in hell. If it lay in my power, but 
C.S. Lewis says, it has the full support of Scripture and especially our Lord's own words. It has always and through the centuries been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. Did you hear that? It is scripturally based, a supported doctrine. It's accepted by the Christian church through the ages, and it is reasonable. It makes sense in light of the doctrine of man's free will that our choices are moral and we are responsible to God who is both loving and just. What surprises most of us is just how much Jesus had to say about the subject. Scholars often cite that Jesus had more to say about hell's reality than heaven. And the term used for hell in the text, we've already looked at. Gehenna, one of the most descriptive, found 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times coming from the very lips of Jesus. And so C.S. Lewis says, in the great divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, There could be, C.S. Lewis says, no hell. But then he says, no soul that sincerely, seriously, and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek, find. And those who knock, to them he opens the door. Okay, so what's the goal? I'm going to run out of time. What's the goal? What is it that matters so much and makes it worth it all? The text describes it in two ways. Two times with the word life and once with the word kingdom. The kingdom of God. If anything would keep you from entering into life. Life is the goal. Zoe life. Qualitative. Eternal life. Life is the goal. Life. Life and the kingdom of God. When he uses it the final time. It's Hebrew parallelism. It it, it means that these things are in essence. they're, they're, They're synonyms. They're synonymous. How can you define the, the idea of the kingdom? Let me just, I, I'm not going to have time for a, a huge discussion here, but, but taking a lesson from Hebrew parallelism, consider the Lord's prayer. How does it start out? How, how, how does he model that for us in prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. In Hebrew parallelism, the second line further expands, amplifies, gives meaning to the first. What does it mean? What does it mean to seek the kingdom? What does it mean to enter in and live in the kingdom? It means his will gets done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven.
That's the thumbnail sketch. I get it. Bob and Carrie have a retreat coming up in three weekends on living in the kingdom. If you're a married couple here, it's a couple's retreat, right? For married couples. Okay. So if you're a married couple here and you've never been a part of that retreat where, 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 where the discussion and the center of, the, of discussion is life in the kingdom, living in the kingdom, talk to Bob and Carrie today. They've got a couple of slots that, they can, that are still available. This is the crucial thing. This is the thing Jesus says is worth selling out. Everything else is life in the kingdom that the will of God the will of God in our lives is worked out in our lives here, beginning now on this earth and then in heaven as it's already been established in heaven. And if I apply that, it means it's worth any sacrifice, any discipline, any self-denial to do the will of God. Even radical obedience like it's talked about in the text. That only in doing the will of God is there real life and ultimate and complete and satisfying peace. Jesus Jesus saying is meant to be taken very personally by every one of us here. It means that it may be necessary to excise some habit, to abandon some pleasure, to give up some friendship, to cut out something that's become very dear to us, which is a part of our very lives, in order to be fully obedient to the will of God. And this is not a matter with which anyone can deal with for anyone else. It's solely a matter of a man's individual conscience before God. And it means that if there's anything in our lives which is coming between us and perfect obedience to the will of God, however, however near and dear that thing may be, that habit, that custom, Whatever we've allowed to be a part of our lives, it must be rooted out. And so that's the question. Is there anything in your life? Anything in your life that's coming between you and Jesus? And his will, perfect will, for your lives. Okay. Just three quick words of advice and I close. Focus on the goal. Focus on the goal. Lock on to the prize, which is life. Life eternal and the kingdom. Life in the kingdom. Focus on the goal. If you focus on trying to defeat sin in your life, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fall down again and again and again and again. The focus needs to be on the goal. Loving, trusting devotion to him. The life that he offers. Now, if you do stumble, don't act surprised and get right back up. Get right back up. Ask for the help you need. You see, a part of the the, the last phrase that, that... 
that Jesus gives them in that conversation after he talks about the covenant of salt the, is the covenant community. And he says, so be at peace with one another. Yeah, that's how it started out. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And he, and he comes back around full circle. So, you know, what Jesus is saying is that, is that if you fall down and you stumble, get some help. Ask someone for help. Live in covenantal community. Be salt and light for each other in the spheres in which you live your lives. And, and so if you stumble, get right back up. And then last, I would just say details matter. Details matter. But where you start out is with the big things. Whatever the Spirit of God pulls up in your mind's eye, start there. And a lot of times we start working on the details without working on the real issues in our life. I've noticed that about us. Human tendency to do that. But details will matter later on down the road. I have watched... I have shared an office for these last months with my son, Jim, and he has these three boxes. And, and in one of them, he's, he's putting a small box. He's putting things that are essential that he has to take with him. And then he's got this other one that's the question mark box. I might need that in the future. I don't know. And he's got this box of he's just throwing stuff away. That means just giving that stuff away. See, the thing I love about that is because I've watched my son grow up. This guy couldn't organize anything. He never could make his bed growing up, okay? And God has forced him now into looking at the details of his life to figure out what he's going to take and what he's going to leave behind. I'm saying, but the first decision to follow Christ is to let God do in you what really needs to get done to deal with the real issues in your life, whatever it is that's keeping you from walking faithfully in the will of God for your life. Okay, and I close with with a verse that wraps it up for me, and that's Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to give you the King James because that's the one I memorized when I was 21 and I gave my life to Jesus. I beseech ye, I beg ye, I plead with you, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now listen, so that you can prove, know, establish, affirm, it means, his will, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray.